Father, we thank you again for this beautiful day. And now we turn, now we turn to your word. Your word is holy. It is powerful. It is the breath of God spoken to us. It contains the power of God to accomplish what you say. It is the wisdom of God to tell us what we need to do. It is the understanding of God to tell us who He is and who we've been made to be. And it is the direction of God to call us and tell us what we are to do. And so, Father, we thank You that You've not left us in this world without direction, without instruction, and also without Your power. And so we turn to this sacred word today. We thank you for the privilege to have that and to be able to openly read it today and to declare it today and to teach it today. We don't ever want to take that freedom and that privilege for granted. We thank you also for the presence of your Holy Spirit, who is not only here in us because he dwells in us, but he's also here among us because you said where two or more of us are gathered together in your name, there are you in our midst and you are here today by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we look to the Holy Spirit to take this word and make it alive to us, quicken it, make it alive in our hearts, to, to birth into us vision, dreams, understanding. Help us to see what we cannot see with our mind and with our no- eyes. Your word says our eyes have not seen and our ears have not heard all that God has prepared for those who love him, but they are revealed to us by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask you today to do that. And most of all, to open the eyes of our understanding today, the inner eyes of our inner understanding, that we may truly see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that grace in advance because we know you are faithful to do what you promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to John 15. Last week we went and spent some time just talking to fathers, but we're going to get back into into preparation for what God has called us to do. And we spent a number of weeks talking about dry bones, the valley of the dry bones back in Ezekiel 37, which is God talking to Israel at that point, and I believe to the church today, about where we are and, and what, ne- what needs to happen, that the Spirit of God has to breathe on us to, to bring us to where we need to be, from being a valley full of scattered, dried, helpless, impotent bones to a mighty army ready to do the work of God in this day and age. And so it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. And then several weeks ago we moved over and we looked into this verse in John because Jesus was preparing to leave his disciples, at least leave them in the relationship they had with them of being humanly among them. And everything was about to change. He'd been walking among them. They'd been training them and equipping them. Everything Jesus did was purposeful. And, and then he's about to leave them uh, in terms of there as a staff, and he's about to go to the cross and then be raised and go from dead, the dead and go into heaven. And, 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 and the church is about to be birthed. And so these last words that Jesus gives to them before everything changes. I don't know about you, I don't like change. I like, you know, <laughs> unless it's the change of going on vacation. You know, there's some changes I do like. But the, especially when you don't know what's, gonna, what's happening, things start changing. You don't know, we get unsettled. And you can get edgy and, you know, kind of touchy because things start... When God starts working in me sometimes, I find I'm a very normally even-keeled even person, but I can find sometimes I get edgy and it's because God's working to change things in me. When He changes, you don't know where you are and where you're going to go to and what's going on inside of you. It's kind of like renovating a house. You know where you want to get it to? You don't like where it was, but you don't like the mess you've got to go through to get there sometimes. And so change often is unsettling. So these, this, Jesus knew they were going to be unsettled. That's why I think it's in John 14 when he says, you know, do not be troubled because they were going to be troubled. And so he's speaking to them. So my point is this. These are the last words he's saying to them to prepare them for this change. So they're very important words to them. And so we went into John 15, which is where we're going today. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing again. I just want to bring us back and remind us where we are. This is one of his major points, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what we talked about last time. And we went and showed you scriptures in Ephesians 1 and some others, where it's not just those disciples and apostles that he chose, but he chose you and he chose me. We are in the kingdom of God today. If you are in the family of God, if you are in the kingdom of God today, it's because he chose you. We talked a little bit about what that meant, that he chose you. 
Some of the things, see, we just don't read over that quickly, but meditate, and we really spent a whole service doing that. It means, the word choose means to be picked out of various alternatives. And I told you the story of when I was a, when I was a teenager and, and, you know, we, our guys in our neighborhood and would, would play games and we kind of line up for, you know, and, and, and to choose sides. And, and I was not the most athletic and I was just a little pudgy. And, and so I was often the last one. And my point was this, until it came down to me, Whoever was chosen was chosen after looking at the other alternatives and they said, no, I want you. But when it got down to me and I was the only one left, I wasn't chosen (laughs) because there were no other alternatives. (laughs) That's not choosing. (laughs) That's just settling. And so I think that's often the image we have is that God's had to settle for me. No, He chose you. He chose you. So we looked at the fact that it means God looked at all kinds of alternatives and He picked you out of the other alternatives. You say, well, God would do that? Yeah, we look at He did Israel. He picked Israel out of other alternatives. And so He is God, you know, He can do that. He has a right to choose what He wants to choose. And aren't you glad He chose you? You are glad He chose you, aren't you? Okay, because He's listening. You're glad He chose you. Okay, all right. So not only does it mean He chose you out of alternatives... Secondly, He chose you knowing you. Because in Ephesians 1, it says He chose you before the foundation of the world. See, God doesn't live in time. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what you're going to think tomorrow, what you're going to say tomorrow, what you're going to think and say next year, next week, whatever. And in spite of what He knows about you, He chose you. Some of you need to let that sink in. Because some of you are still trying to measure up so that He'll accept you. But if He chose you, He's accepted you. If He chose you, that's another thing we looked at, He's responsible for the choice. It was a free choice. You didn't make Him choose you. He chose you. And having chosen you, He's responsible for choosing you. So He knew what He was going to get when He chose you. You didn't fool Him. You're not a surprise. So that tomorrow if you do something stupid, which we don't want you to do, but if you do, God's not going, oh, I don't believe they did that. Oh, I got second thoughts about them. If anybody ever had an opportunity to give him second thoughts, it was his own disciples. I mean, they were squabbling among each other. You know, we, we, we pick on James and John because it's their mother that came and said, you know, which one of my, you know, I don't care which one you choose, but I want one of my boys on your left and one on the right when you get into your kingdom. And we pick on them, but if you read on further, the rest of them got upset at them for wanting to be in that place. So that means they wanted to be there too. So there was envy, jealousy, strife in his own team. They were stumbling over the, Peter was always opening his mouth. And declaring things he wasn't able to carry out. And there must have been times he looked... We know it because he would get frustrated sometimes. And and their faith level? I mean, these are guys that live with him. It's not like they went to Bible school and he was one of the teachers. They live with him. Right after the centurion is praised, a Roman officer... Not a covenant member of the family of God. A Roman officer is praised for having such great faith. They get into a boat to go to the other side. He goes to sleep because he said, let's go to the other side. And the storm comes up. The waves are breaking over the boat. Not only do they panic and wake him up, they accuse him of not caring about them. They turned on him. And he stands up after stopping the storm and looks at him and says, Oh, ye of little faith, his staff. And yet he chose them. We saw last week that he didn't just pick them randomly. Before he chose those twelve, he spent all night in prayer asking the Father who to choose. So the whole point of this is you didn't fool God. He chose you knowing everything about you, knowing far more about you than you know about yourself. 
So he's not surprised. That's an important thing to let sink in. I just encourage you, just matter. Get on the, he chose me. Look in the mirror and say, He chose you. So no matter what anybody else thinks about you, but your parents, your kids, your boss, your spouse, or you yourself, God chose you. And that's where your value comes from. It doesn't come from what you do. It doesn't come from how well you do it, although we want to do our best for Him. It doesn't come from anything about you. It's because He chose you is what gives you value in the kingdom of God. Then we need to learn to see each other that way too. That person sitting next to you right now, God chose them. Your spouse, God chose them. And so did you. So when you get upset at them, you're getting upset at your choice. God chose them. God chose the person here to irritate you the most. And it may be me. (laughs) Sometimes a pastor is a pester. (laughs) You are chosen. All right, that's what we've talked about before, but we're going to move on a little bit today. And the question is, what did he choose us to do? Why did he choose us? He chose us to love us because he loved us, but then he chose us for a purpose. And and I was beginning, getting prepared to launch into all this, and something really struck me. So go with me to Matthew chapter 4 which is where we went to last time. Matthew chapter 4. Now when you get there, let me get it, I'm going to, before we get into Matthew chapter 4, I want to tell you some things the scripture says you were, cho- you were chosen to do. First of all, if we'd read on in, in that verse in John 15, 16, it says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you that you should go bear that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So the first thing we saw is we've been chosen to bear fruit. We ended last time in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which says, You are a chosen generation, people. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A peculiar, the King James says, that means a particular, a unique people. That we, so we're, we're, you're, we're together here because God chose us and brought us together. So that we should show forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So we're called to bear fruit. We're called to show forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Ephesians 2.10 says we are His workmanship. He made us, but we're created unto good works. So we've been called, first of all, so that we would bear fruit. We've been called to show forth His praises. We were called for, we were created in, in order to, to do good works. Acts 1.8 says that you are called to be His witnesses. Not to go witness for Him, to, to be a witness. To go witness for Him is something you do. To be a witness for Him is something you live. Something you are. And there are more we could look at, and that's what I was beginning to look at. But the Bible is so simple and so powerful. Every word is powerful. So I went back into this to just to ground myself in it. And we're going to look at verse 18. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting it into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's going to become important to us later on. And he said to them, follow me. And I was going to go on with that, and those words just jumped off the page. That's what he called them to do first above everything else. Before he called them 
to bear fruit, before He called us to show forth the praises, before He called us to be a witness, before He called us to do good works, before He called us to do anything, the first thing He called us to do was to follow Him. And I suggest to you, until we learn how to follow Him, we're not going to produce His works, we're going to produce our works. Until we follow Him, we're not going to bear His fruit, we're going to bear our fruit. Until we learn to follow Him, we're not going to show forth the praises of Him, we're going to show forth our praises. So the foundation, because we're talking now about answering the call. The foundation for answering the call is simply to do the first thing he said to do and never forget it. And that first thing above all things and everything comes from it is to follow him. Now go back with me into John 15. I should have told you to stay there. I put something there. John 15. But it's okay to move around in your Bible. It won't hurt you. John 15. You ought to know where it is. I want to show you other places where he says this. John 15, verse 8, 4. Now this is part of that same final instructions. Abide in me and I in you. The word abide is the Greek word meno, which means to remain in. Settle down in. Make your home in. I assume we all have a home where we live. That's where you abide. And the place where you abide is the place where you your stuff is. Oh, this could preach. <laughs> it's where your stuff is. You all have stuff, don't you? It's that's where you, you leave your, your stuff's at home. You may have some stuff at work, but the important stuff's at, at home. It's where you get your rest. It's where you, you may go out and do other things, but you always come back to it. It should be your sanctuary. It's supposed to be. Place of rest and restoration. It should be the place of peace in your life. It should be that. That's why Satan attacks it so much. It's your home. It's where you live. And he's saying, make your home in me. I should be your place of rest. I should be your place of peace. Your stuff should be in me. Abide in me, and I abide in you. That's talking about a very close, personal relationship. And he goes on to say, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you will bear fruit. We've talked about this before. So he's talking about a branch, because earlier he says, I'm the vine and you're the branch. So he's the vine. The source of life comes up through the trunk of the tree. We're more used to those. Because a vine there is different than a vine here. Vines here grow up the side of your house and they take everything over. But a vine there is a thicker thing. So let's talk about a tree. The trunk of the tree. He's the trunk of the tree. The sap, the life-giving force, comes out of the ground up through that and it flows out through the branches and we're the branches. And that life-giving force flowing out through the branches produces the fruit. Notice what he's going to say produce the fruit. The, the fruit's supposed to be produced in us, but before that he says we're to abide in him. So that branch can only produce fruit if it's abiding, if it's connected vitally to remaining in, dwelling in close relationship with the trunk. So the focus here is on the abiding in, not on the fruit. We're to produce fruit, but we can't produce the fruit if we're not abiding in Him. Because He says in here, apart from me. That means separated from me, not walking with me. You can produce nothing. Not just less than you could produce if you were in me. Listen to that. It's not just that it's better if you're abiding in me. So that's a good thing to do, Pastor. We need to do that. I know that because that will help me to produce fruit. No, he's saying unless you abide in me, you can't produce anything that counts for the kingdom of God. There's some trees that produce fruit that's not... We have a crabapple tree in our front yard. 
And it will produce crab apples. But guess what? They're useless. Can't eat them. So it's producing something, but it's not a healthy tree. In other words, he's saying it's all or nothing. You're either abiding in me and I'm producing fruit through you, or you're not abiding in me. I want to talk about whether you're going to heaven or not. We're talking about producing fruit. So if you're producing fruit, but you're not abiding in him, it's not his fruit being produced through you. It's his fruit being produced through you that nourishes other people. Your fruit won't nourish anybody for the kingdom of God. My fruit won't. And it will wear you out trying to produce it. It will, you just have to strain and push and work hard to produce that fruit because it's not coming from a source of life. It's coming from you. So it's taking your life out of you instead of letting his life flow through you. I was talking to somebody this morning that's in a position where they, when they come in working here, they have to, they have to give of themselves. Well, we all do. And I've had this experience. Come in and you're just kind of dragging. Yes, I've come in dragging sometimes. And you just, you know, I don't want to be here. And, you know, yeah. And the next thing you start talking to somebody, you start giving to them, and there's life. Why? Because you're giving his life that's in you out. And when you start giving it out, his life starts flowing through you. And the hose always gets wet when the water's flowing. His life flowing out of you produces life in you. So if you're not walking in his type of life this morning, if you're not full of his type of life, it's because it's not flowing out of you. And maybe it's not flowing out of you because you've stopped being vitally connected to him. So the first thing he called them to do before anything else was simply to follow him. Here he reiterates it. Now let's go to John 21. Oh, I love this. I love it when it all fits together. It satisfies my outlining mind. John 21. Now this is at the very end. He's gone to the cross, been raised from the dead. When he was raised, when he went to the cross, all the disciples except John scattered and they went back to Galilee. And they started fishing again. By the way, that's a, that's a common thing. When things start, look like they're falling apart, whether it's spiritually or the natural, the instinct is to go back to what you used to do. To revert back to what you used to do. When you're under pressure... The things you've declared to do and want to do, you get shaky, you'll tend to go back and start doing the things that you used to do, falling back into old habits. They went back fishing because it's what they knew to do. It's what, had, that, what, what they had confidence in. And he met them where they were. I don't want to go through this whole story. We don't have time this morning. But we're going to pick up in verse 15. They're out fishing. He tells them to cast the net on one side. And they get a boatload of fish, just like they did when he first called them, if we looked at Luke's account in Luke chapter 5. And Peter recognizes, it's the master. And he jump, takes his outer garment off, jumps over the side of the boat and swims to shore. And he already has fish there prepared. Jesus does. And they're eating fish and breakfast. Verse 15. So when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, this is their really first personal encounter since Peter denied him three times. So part of what Jesus is doing here is restoring Peter. Peter, do you still love these more than me? Do you love me more than these? Excuse me. And there's all kinds of, uh, of theories about what he's talking about. I think it's really simple because up until the, Peter denied him, Peter was confident that he loved Jesus more than any of the rest of them. He was confident in his own commitment to the Lord. He was confident in his own dedication to the Lord. Oh, this is going to be good. He's confident in his, that he had sold everything out for the Lord. 
until it came time to stand up for the Lord when he was arrested and Peter found out where he really was. Now, Jesus knew where he was because Jesus said to him, Peter, Peter, Satan has come for permission to test you, to sift you like wheat. And I have prayed for you. Isn't that a comforting he's prayed for him? I've prayed for him that when you, when you come through this, and so he says, when you've come through this, strengthen your brethren because they're going to need it also. And so Peter's now found out the purpose of testing is to find out where you are, isn't it? The purpose for testing is you think you're somewhere and then you get the tester back and you thought you were going to get an A and you got a C minus. Oh, I don't think I knew as much as I thought I did, which now becomes the opportunity to learn because if you don't know where you are, you'll get satisfied with where you are. And so Peter's discovered where he is. He's not where he was and that's the opportunity for Jesus to minister to him as long as he would take that opportunity and not rebel against it and become prideful and say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, they, they misunderstand me, whatever the excuses he used. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. So that's what's happening here. <clears throat> and he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, you've got to really understand what's happening here. The, there's, there's five basic words for love that are in Greek that are all translated love. But the two we need to know the most here is there's the word agape, which is a, basically means the kind of love God loves with us. It's, unsac- it's, it's, un- it's, it's totally unselfish. It's loving you not because you're lovable, but loving you because that's my nature. It's the word that's used for God's love for us. It's the word Peter used when he said he loved the Lord and found out he didn't love him that much. So Jesus is saying, do you still love me do you still love me as much as these, saying agape? And Peter's answer is, Lord, you know that I love you, which is phileo, which is the brotherly type of love, a friendship type of love. So the answer is Peter's acknowledging, I don't love you at the level I thought I loved you. And he says, feed my lamb. So he's recommissioning him to do what he called him to do. He's restoring Peter here said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me, agape me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now Jesus drops it to phileo. Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. Instead of telling Jesus what Peter knew, Jesus is, Peter's now broken and saying, you know where I am. I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So he's restoring him. Verse 18, more surely I say to you when you were younger, now he's going to talk about his future, you girded yourself and walked where you wish, and when you old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He spoke signifying by what type of death Peter would glorify God, which is crucifixion. And when he had spoken these things, he said to him, what? Follow me. So he began by calling him, and the call was to follow him. Preparing him for this change, the launching into the ministry he was going to have, he said, Abide in me. Stay in close relationship with me. And now at the end, having been risen from the dead, having restored him, recommissioned him, the last thing he says is, follow me. Now there's a little more into the story. Now they're walking along the beach. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. So they're walking down the beach after eating breakfast. Peter turns around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following Now, I'll show you this in a minute, but when you're turning around, looking who's around you and behind you, you've stopped following. And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, who had been leaned on his breast at the supper, who just happened to be the guy that's writing the story. It's John. And he said to Jesus, Lord... Oh, no, and who said, who's the one who betrays us? They're still talking. It's identifying the one that's following Jesus and Peter is John. Peter, seeing him, seeing John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? 
And Jesus said, if I will that he remains until I come, what's that to you? And then look what he says. You follow me. He starts by calling him to follow him. He prepares them for his leaving by saying, stay in close relationship, follow me. And he restores Peter back to his calling, but it reminds him at the end twice that that calling is above everything else to follow him. And now Peter getting all, still doesn't have it because he's walking along and saying, all right, I know what I'm... See, he's focused on where he's supposed to be going, but he forgets what he's supposed to be doing. Ooh, that's good. He's so caught up in the vision Jesus just gave him. First of all, hey, it's good news. You're going to live to be an old man. That becomes important because not long from now, they arrested Peter and he was to be executed the next day. And if you read through that story, the angel shows up in his room and has to hit him to wake him up because the next morning he's about to be beheaded or crucified and Peter's asleep. The reason Peter's asleep is Jesus told him, you'll live to be an old man. So he's beginning to learn to have faith in what Jesus said. So he's, he's now full of this vision of, of what he's going to do and next thing you know, he gets distracted. But well, what about him? And Jesus' answer is, what's it to you? In other words, it po- politely, it's none of your business. And he reminds him of what he's supposed to do, which is follow me. Now, what does it mean to follow someone? Again, last time we looked at what does it mean to be chosen? These are important words to meditate on. What does it mean to follow someone? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me give you what my dictionary I looked up said. It's interesting. This was under Webster's Miriam Dictionary. I got online this one. It means to go, proceed, or come after. You don't need to write all this down. To engage in as a calling or a way of life. To be or act in accordance with. So Jesus called them to proceed or come after him. He called them to engage in or a calling after him or adopt his way of life. It means to be or act in accordance with. So he called them to act in accordance with him. Oh, this is good. To accept as authority. Oh, that's a popular one. So when he called them to follow him, he was calling them to accept his authority in their life. The next meaning was to pursue in an effort to overtake. The next was to seek or to attain. Oh, the next one's good. To copy after. So he was calling them to copy after him. The next one, to watch steadily. So they was calling them to watch him steadily. The next one is to keep their mind on. And to attend closely to and keep abreast of. Now I want to reduce this and make it very, very simple to you. Brendan, put your pen down in your Bible and come here. This is Brendan Lawler, one of our ushers. You ready? Now you stand right there and you face that way. All right? All I'm telling you to do is follow me. Okay? All right. Stop a second. Did he do it? Okay. It was hard work, wasn't it? In order to do that, what did he have to do? It's real simple. He had to keep his eyes on me. He didn't have to figure out where we were going. He didn't have to worry about where we were going to get there or not. He didn't have to know some great plan or glorious plan. 
All he had to do was keep his eyes on me. And when he kept his eyes on me, he followed me. And when he followed me, I got him where I wanted him to go. It's really simple. Now, let's do it a little differently this time. We're going to, I'm not going to tell you the route we're going to take, but you're to follow me. But in the process of it, I want you to check with your wife and make sure that you're doing okay. okay. All right? Okay? And then, then just to be sure, make sure you, I want you to kind of check with Pastor Ray to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. Okay? okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. And I don't want to get any more complicated than that. All right. Let's go. Okay. I had him do what Peter did. First of all, he checked with his wife to make sure he was okay. Now, there's times we need to do that, but only when you're following him. Then I had him check with Pastor Ray, someone else, to see what he was doing. Just like Peter checked to see what John was doing. But when he turned around to see what John was doing, guess what he was not doing? There are all kinds of good things you can do that distract you from following him. And the first thing he's called us to do above everything else is to follow him. All right, we're going to look at some distractions now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Because what we're going to see, and you don't hear a lot about this today, you hear a lot about what God's done for us, what God wants to do for us, but we're going to look at what God's required of us. Matthew 18, verse 8. Excuse me, 8, verse 18. Matthew 8. Verse 18, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you, that's what we're talking about, wherever you go. And Jesus is going to tell him what that's going to require. But Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have the air and have nests, the son of man has, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he's saying, I've left home. I don't have a regular home. I've heard people teach again, but that's what he says. Another of his disciples, another of their disciples, came and said, Lord, let me first go bury, bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead. Now, you've got to understand, he's not saying you can't attend your parents' funeral. He's talking about excuses. Where things are in our heart, are more important to us than He is. Let's look at some others. Let's go look over now. Let's look over now at Luke chapter 18. Very famous story. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me to Luke 18. I know it's here. It was here this morning. Verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Let's get this straight first of all. Why do you call me good? No one's good but, the one, that, but, but one, that is God. What he's saying there is, The goodness you see in me is a reflection of His goodness. It did not originate in me. If Jesus had that attitude... How much more do we need to have that attitude? All right, but that's not our point. So he's asked him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And he said, all these things I've done from my youth. Oh, he's so proud of that. And Jesus heard these things. He said, you still lack one thing. 
Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Some of the other reports said that he walked sorrowfully away. Now, he's not saying here you can't have possessions. He's not saying here that today we've got to leave here, sell everything we have, give it to Providence Rescue Mission of the Poor, and then we're all going to go live in a commune somewhere. That's not what he's saying, because if you look in Matthew 6, you'll see he talks to this principle, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And the question is, for our life, is what is the treasure of our heart? Is it him first, or is it other things? Is he somewhere in there, or is he the treasure that we're following above everything else. Because that's what he requires, that we follow him above everything else. That Notice when Brendan followed me, there was nothing between us. I could have brought Lisa up and just have her in between us. Or I could have brought some, something up and put it in between us, in which case that's interfering with his ability to follow me. And that's what he's saying here. Now he gets more specific. Excuse me. We just, when Jesus saw that he become sorrowful, he said, "How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God?" By the way, notice he didn't go chasing after him. Notice he didn't go chasing after him. How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Think about that. Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it got discouraged because they said, then who can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, well, see, now he's looking at himself. See, we've left all and followed you. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, one who's left house or parents or mother and wife or children for the sake of the kingdom, who shall receive, not receive many times more this in the present life, age, and to, to, in the age to come, eternal life. Let me read that again. I got it all mixed up. Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So the first thing it means to call, answer the call is, is the first thing he had to do is he had to leave where he was. Now I skipped it, but if we went on in Matthew 4 where we were reading, when he called them and says, come follow me, the very first next verse says, and they immediately left everything. So the first response to following him, to follow him, is you've got to leave everything else. That doesn't mean you've got to leave your home and never go. It doesn't mean that. It's talking about in here. They immediately left it. I looked up that word immediately in Greek, and it means immediately. (laughs) They dropped their nets. They didn't come up with, well, you know, what about this? They dropped their nets because they recognized the privilege of being called to follow him. So the call is, first of all, to follow him. But to follow him, we have to leave where we were. You can't, Brendan could not follow me and stay where he was Because if he stayed where he was, in order to get behind me, I've got to come to where he is. Which means I'm following him. Some of us are trying to get Jesus to follow us. We're trying to get him to do what we want done. The way we want it done. We're telling him, no, not now, it's not convenient for me. I want you to wait. That's asking him to follow me. So only one of us is leading. See, if my wife and I are dancing, one of us has to lead. Because if we both lead, we're going to step on each other's feet. It just doesn't work. One has to lead, one has to follow. He said, you follow me. 
that means he leads. So if I'm resisting him, if I'm doing something else, I'm trying to get him to follow me. And he won't. He'll wait until you choose to come and answer his call. But the only way to answer his call is to leave where you are. Necessarily physically, they left what was important to them. They dropped their nets. That was their means of livelihood. That was what they trusted in. They worked on those day and night. They, they caught fish with them. They mended them. They took care of them. And they immediately dropped all that that meant to them and followed him. Well, let's look on at what he says here. Verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside, and he goes on and says, let me just make sure I'm in the right place here. Nope. Go to Luke 14. Verse 15. It's another example, the same principle. Now, here's a parable he's telling. Now, when those who sat at the table with him heard these things, they said, Blessed are you who shall eat the bread of the kingdom of God. They're just so full of themselves. And he said to them, A certain man came to a great supper, invited many. He sent his servant at supper to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are ready now. So they were invited to come. That's what we're talking about. Come, follow me. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first one said to him, uh, I, Yeah, I want to come. But I got, I got, I've bought a piece of ground, and I've got to go take care of it. I've got to go see to it. Uh, would you please excuse me for a while? And another said, verse 19, Well, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go test them out, so I'll ask you to please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. Are you kidding me? I just got married. Therefore, I can't come right now. So the servant came and reported these things to the master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes and cities, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, that's all been done as you commanded, but there's still room. The master said to the servant, Go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. And I say to you that none of those who were invited shall taste of my supper. Now, the point here is, he's, he's invited these people, the guests, to come, and their response is to look at other things that are more important to them before they plan to come. In one case, it's an investment he's made. In another case, it's his, his, his car. Well, it's his, it's his animals, but it's his car. And then the, the last one is, a great. I just got married. And so the master gets angry at that. I guess they don't want the supper. So he tells them to go get others that will come. And this is what we want to get to, verse 25. And the multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, this is the lesson of the parable, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, he doesn't mean, you know, get angry at your wife, call your father or mother-in-law names. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking because you don't do that with yourself, because he talks about yourself also. He's talking about he must be first above all those relationships. In order to follow him, he demands that he be first, that we follow him first above every other relationship. Because here he's talking about relationships. That includes my spouse, my family. We had a commitment to family last week. But we can't do that if he's not First, we talked last week about things getting out of order in our lives because God has ordained an order and it starts with Him being first. The Ten Commandments start with Him being first in our heart, not just with our time, not just with our money, but in our heart because it's an issue of the heart more than anything else. That's why tithing is so important. Because it's an issue of the heart. Yes, sir. 
It's not the money. It's the heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So Jesus is saying, I want your treasure because I know if I've got your treasure, I've got your heart. And without your heart, you won't follow me out of your heart. You'll follow me out of an obligation. You'll follow me out of a desire to receive some benefit. But you won't follow me because you love me. All right. So he's putting all those relationships in there. He did this with Abraham. God did. Called Abraham. Abraham's calling was to be the father of many nations. He was too old to have a child. His wife was barren and she was too old. We've been over this story many times. God says, no, I've called you to be the father of a people that's going to spawn many nations. And God taught him how to trust his word. And by trusting his word, God produced in them Isaac. The son of his faith. The joy of his life. The answer to his dreams. The foundation to God's dream. But then at a particular day, God called him and said, I want you to take that boy I gave you. And I want you to go three days to a mountain where I'm going to tell you, and I want you to take him up there, and I want you to offer his life back to me. And Abraham was obedient to do it as hard as that must have been to take the gift God had entrusted to him, the gift God had made him believe, and to bring it up to that altar and to lay him, tie him up, lay him down on that altar, bring that knife up and be prepared to bring it down. And when God stopped him, he said, Now I know that you fear or reverence me. Now I know I'm first in your heart, even among that boy that I gave you. you say, what's that got to do with me? God's given you gifts. Your family, your spouse. It may be talents and abilities. It may be a call and an anointing. But whatever He's given to you, He owns. You don't. You are a steward of it. He's entrusted them or that gifting or whatever it is to you for His purposes. And He must be first in order for you to follow him. Because the following is with the heart, not with the feet. You can follow with the feet, but if the heart will get distracted and pull you somewhere else. Okay. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear up, bear up his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether it's enough to finish it or not? Lest whether he's laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all who see begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but he's not able to finish. God wants us to finish strong. And you will not finish strong if your heart is not following him. There's too many distractions, there are too many pressures, there are too many things you'll go through to pull you off course. But what the enemy's trying to do is to pull your heart away from him. What king among you, verse 31, went to war against another king, but he didn't sit down first and decide whether or not he had, he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? In other words, figuring, he's saying, count the cost. Don't just do this quickly. Understand what you're doing. Because then it has meaning to you. Verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how, can it, how will it be seasoned? For it will not be fit for the land. What are we saying here? No one, nothing, or no one can have a hold on you that's stronger than your devotion to Him if you're going to follow Him. 
Let's turn to Acts 20 and we'll end there today. And there's, another, there's a second point to this, but we'll get to that next time. Acts chapter 20. I want to show you that this is not just in the Gospels. It's in the New Testament also. Paul went through all kinds of things. He went through persecutions and he talks about them here. And at this point, he's headed back to Jerusalem and he's just said, when I get back there, chains await me. Everywhere I go, it's prophesied to me the beatings and the chains that await me. And he's going to tell us his secret. He's going to tell us how he finished strong, how he did not waver and fall in his following the Lord. Because he was called also on the road to Damascus, just as these men were called and you and I have been called. Verse 23, Acts 20, 23. He said, I go bound, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that certain chains and tribulations await me. How'd you like to have that prophecy over you? Brother, I have a word, a word from God for you. When you get home, there's chains awaiting you and persecution. Look at this, verse 24. But none of these things move me. They're there, but they don't move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Why? So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I can finish my course, notice this, with joy. Through the persecutions, the difficulties, the trials, the testings, I can finish it with joy. Why? Because I already died. Galatians 2.20 says, I was crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. For I count, do not count my life as dear to me. I've given it to the Lord. Isn't that the expression we use? Now, in Revelation chapter 12, don't turn there. He gives us the key. Because over and over in the book of Revelation, it talks about what's going to happen to those who overcome. That means there are going to be things to overcome for us. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. That's what Jesus did. By the word of their testimony. That's what we say. And the one they often forget is the third one. And they loved not their life to the death. In order to follow Him, we have to let go of where we are and release what's dear to us to Him. What you'll find is He'll give it back to you. When He gives it back to you, it's blessed. When you hold on to it, it rots. When He asks for something and you give it to Him, you've put Him first again. He's not going to let you alone. He's not going to, you're not going to starve. You're not going to go without. But when He's first, He's responsible for you. When something else is first, that's responsible for you. Follow me. And they immediately left their nets and followed Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your goodness and grace in our lives. These are sobering thoughts but they are, and challenging thoughts, but they're the key to victory. They're the key to overcoming. They're the key to finishing our race with joy. Lord, today so many Christians, so many of us, are trying to get through our race, not with joy, but with bitterness, frustration, discouragement, and disappointment. Because we've expected things we've not gotten, and we've gotten things we've not expected. And it's all because somehow, somewhere, we've stopped putting you first in our hearts. Help us to see not only what you require of us, but the wonderful grace and joy and peace and provision that comes with our obedience to your call. We thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.